one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 147, Bulgarian Solidarity. In the last two episodes, we spent our time in the eastern provinces. That's where all the action in our story took place between 927 and 967. So much has happened since then that it's easy to forget the important developments which took place in Bulgaria in the preceding period. They'd converted to Christianity, developed their own written language, annexed large portions of the Western Balkans, and had their ruler recognized as an emperor. All this effort was made to establish Bulgaria as a member of the civilized world, a neighbor who the Byzantines would not attack or attempt to wipe out any more. There is irony, then, that after battering the Romans into agreeing to these terms, the next we hear of them is John Zimisces conquering Bulgaria and retiring its monarch, in front of the Hagia Sophia. What happened between 927 and 67 that made this possible? I won't keep you waiting. The answer is simple. Nothing. Nothing happened. Or rather, no decline set in in Bulgaria. They didn't forget their martial ways now that they were at peace, they didn't fall out with one another or pursue terrible policies, as far as we know. What happened was that a foreign enemy appeared from a surprising direction. The Bulgarians massed their armed forces to meet it and lost. That's it. The point being that medieval states were always vulnerable to this kind of collapse. There isn't necessarily an underlying narrative to explain it. As you know, the Bulgars had spent a lot of energy protecting themselves from the Romans. But they also knew they were vulnerable from the north. Their origins, after all, were as a tribe escaping from wars on the steppes. So they campaigned north of the Danube to establish their authority, and built fortifications for their trading towns on the river. 
We saw these in action when John besieged the Rus at Dristra. But the Rus were a powerful and resourceful enemy. They had risen from nowhere to conquer the peoples along the Dnieper River and establish Kiev as a regional power center. Their expertise was in amphibious operations, definitely not a Bulgarian strength. The Rus took the Bulgarians by surprise and neutralized their cavalry by hiring mercenaries from the steppes. After the initial defeats, the Bulgarians were in a difficult position. Traditionally, they would have withdrawn into the mountains after such a setback. But that was against the Romans who attacked from the south. By coming from the north, the Rus gave the Bulgarians no option but to stand and fight. The mountains were a hundred miles away, and they knew that the Rus were more interested in conquering the Danube trading posts than the Bulgarian interior. If they abandoned the river, then there was every chance the Rus would never leave. So the Bulgarians manned their defences, stood their ground, and were beaten again. With their main army dispersed, Sviatoslav was able to induce those who remained to defect. Without needing to occupy the whole country, the Rus had taken control of Bulgaria. Historian Mark Witto argues that we've seen this story play out multiple times during the course of our podcast. Ostrogothic Italy was almost undone in two years by Belisarius. The Romans were utterly startled by the Arab attacks in Palestine. Visigothic Spain fell after one major battle with the Caliphate. And you can even look ahead to 1066 in England, and indeed the Battle of Manzikert five years after that, to see the same phenomenon. None of which necessarily speak to decline in the state that was defeated. The story of decline is one that historians search for. They may find it, but if they don't, it's worth remembering that medieval states did not have professional standing armies the way we think of them, and that a bad rout could destroy their war-making capacity in a few hours. Even if we were to go looking for a story of decline in 10th century Bulgaria, we wouldn't find one. There are no written histories which cover this period. All we have are Byzantine writers who mention almost nothing about events in Bulgaria during the 40 years of peace. From non-written sources, historians speculate that this was a time of prosperity. When Sviatoslav arrived on the Danube, he was surprised to find that one of the trading towns was wealthier than Kiev. This period was also one when Bulgarian culture, a much-debated concept, spread amongst the people of the Balkans. Monasteries and churches were built. Slavonic inscriptions appear both on buildings and on objects like jewellery. Bulgaria was growing into its new role as a, quotes, civilized society. And it was taking on many of the trappings of Byzantium, we start to get stories of local ascetic holy men, for example. Bulgaria remained a less centralized and less developed state than its Roman neighbor. 
It still didn't have a currency of its own. Taxes were paid in kind, and political life often took place on a local level. We're so in the dark that we don't know if provincial governors were appointed by the Tsar, or if the largest landowner in each region simply kept that title in the family. Either way, the governor would have had to maintain a strong local presence. Travelling around enforcing the payment of tax or the call-up of fighting men would have required a lot of cooperation on the ground. In the mountainous, still very tribal Balkans, we can assume that many people attempted to escape their obligations. The local dues and levies were written down and were often the result of complex negotiation between communities and the noblemen who would collect them. Despite this slow-moving administration, the Bulgarians had been very successful in maintaining a military presence. The landowners across the kingdom clearly identified their interests with the state. Again, looking at the rugged terrain they lived in, you suspect a live-free-or-die-trying attitude prevailed, and that this had been fueled by anti-Roman sentiment. The landowners of the Balkans knew that they had a better life here than anywhere else, better than the Darwinian life of the steppes, better than the enforced orthodoxy and taxation of the empire. When Sviatoslav became temporary master of the Danube, few men seem to have suggested calling in the Romans to help. This new strongman was seen as someone to do business with. With their shared Slavic background probably helped, but I suspect that as an independent warrior landlord, many Bulgarians still felt more kinship with Sviatoslav than they did with the Byzantines. Those feelings of antipathy were shared on the other side of Thrace. It seems pretty clear that despite the 40 years of peace and the spread of Christianity, that the Romans did not view the Bulgarians as civilized neighbors. When Nicephorus didn't get the terms he wanted for a new peace deal, he called in the Rus to attack Bulgaria, the same tactics which the Romans had always used against their steppe enemies. Then when John defeated the Rus, he did not restore the Bulgarian kingdom, he destroyed it. Zimiskis was, of course, a usurper with a capital U. If you murder the previous emperor while he's asleep, you'd better do something spectacular to show that God approved of your grievous sin. So John may have considered restoring Bulgaria as a bulwark against the Rus, but when the time came, he couldn't resist the opportunity to stand in front of a cheering crowd and officially mark the end of Bulgaria as an independent state. In domestic politics, this was as great a victory as could be imagined. The Arabs, though a greater existential threat, had drifted into the background over the past century. The Rus and the Bulgarians had been the enemies closest to home, and those who remembered the slaughter of 40 years past marveled to see the situation brought to a close. 
Except, of course, that this wasn't the end of Bulgaria. Not even close. What John had captured was the centre of the Bulgarian realm, but it wasn't the whole kingdom. That's the advantage of having a decentralised system. If Constantinople fell, so would the empire. But you can burn Pliska to the ground, you can occupy Preslav, and Bulgaria continues to exist. We don't even know how far Roman control extended. The city of Serdica lay just beyond the Hemus Mountains to the west, and it's difficult to tell if it had been captured. Certainly, beyond Serdica, large territories to the south and west and north remained in the hands of local Bulgarians. I finally created a map to cover the Balkans, now that the Romans will be campaigning there regularly. Check it out on the website or social media, or if you're on the Acast site or app, you should be able to see it now. I don't know if the Romans of this period really had any desire to campaign in the Balkans. The magnates who ran the eastern armies were, of course, from eastern Anatolia. They naturally viewed the Arabs as their eternal foes and saw much glory in capturing Syrian cities. Whereas the Bulgarians were Christians and their lands were much poorer. As most of you know, at Basil II, our new emperor will spend much of his time campaigning in the Balkans. But I think it's worth pondering if John might have been better off restoring Tsar Boris instead of stripping him of office. Like the Emperor Maurice four centuries earlier, perhaps John would have been left with a grateful Bulgaria who would have remained at peace for another 40 years and much bloodshed could have been avoided. But as I think about it, I suppose the Romans would have insisted on keeping control of the Danube trading towns. Protecting themselves from Rus' naval power was their number one priority. And restoring Bulgaria would have inevitably led to conflict there, so maybe not. Back to reality then. After John's victory at Dristra, Roman troops were left behind to garrison key strongholds in Bulgaria. But very much like the occupation of the East, the imperial presence was light on the ground. The Byzantines just didn't have thousands of men spare to send north. We know that they would have left a decent force at Preslav, which I will continue to call by its old name, as Iannonopolis, the city of John, did not stick. Major construction work also went on around the mouth of the Danube. Harbour installations and fortresses were built there, and troops were billeted in the trading cities along the river. But beyond that, all we have is speculation. You see, as soon as news that John was dead spread to Bulgaria, a new state began to emerge. The Bulgarians rallied to this fresh leadership, and within little more than a decade, almost everything the Romans had taken was back in native hands. So it's impossible for us to reconstruct what Roman administration was meant to be like, or what exact defensive arrangements were made. 
We do know that John was working on a plan. A large number of lead seals have been found in the area. These came attached to letters, and so we know that various commanders and administrators were appointed to deal with the area. But boy, would they have had their work cut out for them. There was no land register to consult, and no tax records to examine. These administrators would have been forced to rely on local Bulgarians to deal with their own people for them, all in another language. When we were in the East, uh, we talked about the conquests not paying for themselves. That goes double here. The new garrisons would have to be paid for by Roman taxes until they could adapt to the Bulgarian system. It's little surprise under these circumstances that the Bulgarians rallied to new anti-Roman leaders, or that the Byzantine garrisons were quickly induced to abandon their positions and head for home, uh, but we'll get to that in the narrative. The new capital of Bulgaria will appear in the Western Balkans, in historic Macedonia, the same rugged hill country north of Greece which spawned Alexander the Great. It had been occupied by various Slavic tribes when the Romans withdrew during the 7th century, and then the Bulgarians had annexed the area in the 9th the lands around Lake Ohrid became a major centre of both the emerging Slavonic language and of Bulgarian Christianity. The mountainous nature of the region made it a natural home for resistance to Constantinople. The battles at Preslav and Dristra had made it clear that once again the Romans were to be feared in a pitched battle. Guerrilla tactics were going to be required to cut them down to size, and the narrow defiles which lay between the Macedonian lakes and Thessalonica were ideal for the task. Much academic debate has taken place around the exact ethnicity or coherence of the peoples who will attempt to revive the Bulgarian state. Various non-Slavic peoples had been living in that area since the Romans had withdrawn, and various proto-Roman groups too. And even now, deserters from imperial service were welcomed with open arms into the Bulgarian state. There is also the question of the Slavic peasantry, most of whom were probably still pagan, or at least only beginning to adapt their ways to this newfangled Christianity. We'll never know for sure who formed the backbone of the new state or what exactly people believed. The important point is that they identified themselves with the Bulgarian kingdom, which John had just shut down. They saw an anti-Roman state with a Slavic language and Christian religion as worth preserving, and so they fought on. There was some continuity of personnel, too. Many people fled from the battles at Preslav and Dristra, searching for a new home. And when they heard that a government had formed in the West, they moved out there to play a part in a new chapter of Bulgarian history. A shorter episode today, but we'll talk much more about the Balkans going forward, and next time will be much longer as we get back to my interview with Professor Cordellis. 
we'll be previewing the coming reign of Basil II, including his wars with Bulgaria, his decision never to marry, and his civil wars with Bardas Focus and Bardas Scleros. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 